and welcome again to another edition of Locked in Science, formerly known as Lost in Science, where we are spending half an hour with you, wherever you may be, talking about science. And who are we? Well, my name's Stu, and on the show this week, I'm going to talk about what's the difference between artificial and natural anyway. And basically, I'm going to be looking at artificial and natural flavors and why some of the things that we are told are certain flavors don't seem to taste very much like the things that we expect them to. Um, you know, all those sort of manufactured foods that are strawberry flavored and banana flavored and all those various things. Um, yeah, I mean, it's always a little bit suspicious when you eat a banana and it doesn't taste like banana. You're like, no, that tastes like banana flavoring. Yeah, that's right. And uh, there's, a, there's a whole lot of flavors like that. And one of them that I'm, you know, that I was really interested in is that, you know, um, some of the some of the natural flavors you might come across are not actually all that good for you. And I found a right. story about a guy who had too much of a good thing, and <laughs> it actually wasn't that good for him. So I'm gonna yeah. look at gonna look at some natural flavors and artificial, and what what does that even mean anyway? Um, Sounds intriguing. Yeah, and Claire, what have you got for us on this week's show? Well, Stu, you might have seen on a uh, popular streaming service, um, there's a new documentary out. It is about a man who meets an alien and becomes great friends with the alien. Um, have it's you? Called e. it's, e. it's called <laughs> E.T. No, it's called E.T. No, it's called My Octopus Teacher. And it's not a man and an alien. It's a man and an alien-like animal. Um, uh, all about the octopus and the human relationship. And it just really, it's, it, it, I saw it last week. It stuck with me. A lot of people are watching it right now. And it is in, an incredible insight into how clever, um, octo, well, octopuses, octopods, octopi. Octopodies. Octivities, um, <laughs> how clever they are, and how and how alien their intelligence is. Aliens from inner space, not aliens from outer space. I love that, Stu. Aliens from inner space. That's right. Well, let's take a deep dive. Uh, more of that <laughs> later on in the show.
ever since uh, food manufacturing took on an industrial scale over the last century or so, chefs and kitchen technicians and food scientists have been trying to make things taste better for less money, basically. Mm. Um, And over time, a lot of the things people liked to eat were replaced by artificial versions of things they actually enjoyed eating. And over the last sort of 100 or so years, artificial flavourings really taken off as as a thing. Um, You know, chocolate replaced by chocolate flavour, vanilla extract replaced by imitation vanilla, and even fruit flavours like strawberry and banana and grape flavours are often replaced by artificial versions of those fruit flavours. And, I mean, you know, to to get a fruit flavour, you probably need quite a lot of fruit, right, to to then get and extract that flavour. But when you've got like a artificial flavouring, it's not only a lot cheaper but maybe, you know, just a lot less energy expensive to be able to get that. Yeah, it's a lot lot easier to add some flavour. And, you know, making natural flavourings uses up a whole lot of fruit that you could otherwise just eat the fruit. Yeah. You know, and, and this is the point is, well, we're kind of trying to spread it around a bit, but um, yeah, it does use up a lot. So in some cases, the genuine article is actually expensive and difficult to come by. Vanilla, for example, comes from the seed pod of a South American orchid, uh-huh. which is really difficult to grow is outside it? of the tropics. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, a lot of a lot of the world is in the tropics, right? Well, yeah, but, you know, there's not it's, – it's even in the tropics, it's quite hard to oh, grow yeah. the vanilla orchid. Mm. Um, you know, so it's actually quite a rare sort of flavouring. So, you know, when people say you've got vanilla taste, they're actually underselling how uh, interesting vanilla yeah. is as a flavour, really. Have you ever um, grown a um, a vanilla pod, Stu? I've I've killed many a vanilla <laughs> orchid. Um, I've tried a number of times, and obviously, where I live, it's not really the climate for it. And it, even even in greenhouses and stuff like that, they're pretty pretty tricky to get to grow. Um, but in cases uh, of things like strawberries and bananas, you think, okay, there's strawberry and banana. That's yeah, should be easy. plenty of them around. And the flavour you get with artificial strawberry or banana flavour tastes very little like the original fruit they're supposed to be based on. And and I think another one that goes into that would be the grape flavour that you get in things. Oh, it and tastes nothing like grape. It tastes everything yeah. like grape flavour. But the funny thing is about those artificial flavours is they're actually quite old. They've been around for a really long time. And in that time, the fruit flavors or the flavors of the fruit that we buy has actually changed so strawberry (laughs) flavoring strawberry flavoring tastes quite a lot like an old-fashioned strawberry species that used to be very popular really yeah and it was it has a name hot bois is and it was Wow. It was actually featured in the Jane Austen novel Emma when they have a strawberry party. These are the strawberries that they would have been eating at that strawberry party, and she sort of mentions that the variety that they were going to eat of these strawberries. Is is anyone growing these strawberries now? Yeah, and and the funny thing is, um, you can buy that. There is a company who's growing uh, 
these Haute Bois strawberries and they're selling them as bubble berries because they're saying <laughs> they taste like, like bubble, bubble gum. gum. <laughs> so they've gone full circle back round to where they got the flavour from. It's like, well, we don't think strawberries taste like that anymore. So they've got to market them as something else. Wow. But they are the originals. That's the original. They're the OG strawberry. Yeah. Um, grape flavour. I mentioned grape flavour before. Yeah. We get in those ridiculously purple coloured drinks and you get it in bubble gum. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually that grape flavour is a close match for an American grape variety, which American grape varieties are, are different species of grapes. They're called fox grapes. And all of Whoa. our European grapes taste like, you know, different. But the the American fox variety grapes. Fox grape, which is called Concord, tastes nothing like Sultana grapes. It tastes like that grape flavoring. And that is the grape that the American uh, jelly industry, Ah, as in jam-style jelly, make their jelly out of Concord grapes, which is the basis of the world-famous peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Right. I've always thought, oh, yeah, it's just jam. But no, it's that particular weirdly flavoured grape jelly that they prefer on their peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Right. So we don't grow these uh, uh, Concord grapes in Australia, so our jams don't taste like that. Well, that's right. And we don't really eat grape jelly much. You know, you, yeah, don't, no, really go, no. you don't really go down to the supermarket and go, oh, I'll get some grape well, jelly while I'm here. We'll get They don't taste like or... Concord grapes. We don't want to, I mean, yeah, it'd be sort of weird to, to, to make jelly out of the grapes that we eat. Yeah, that's right. And, they, and, you know, the Sultana grapes are just sort of kind of juicy and crunchy, basically. Um, but uh, so, yeah, so the, the, the grape flavouring we get is actually based on a realistic flavour. It's just not something that we tend to eat much of. Um, and the, the last one I mentioned was bananas. So banana flavouring... You get a very strong flavoured sweetness out of that banana yeah. flavour, yeah. which is quite different to what you get when you bite into a banana. And you can kind of get a whiff of it when they start going, you know when bananas mm. go black in the bowl, yeah. you sort of get a whiff of that super sweet yeah. kind of flavour. Um, but apparently, and I've never eaten one, so I can't verify this for sure, but they do <laughs> apparently taste and smell a lot like a variety that was almost wiped out in the 1950s that used to be the most commonly grown banana in the world, which was called the Gros Michel banana or the Big Mike banana. (laughs) The Big Mike banana. Yeah, and the Big Mike got wiped out nearly by a fungal disease in the 50s. Wow. And basically we don't eat it anymore. So the flavour that we get from the banana flavouring is... Quite different to the bananas that we get, which are oh, a different it's quite variety. different to your old Cavendish. That's that's exactly right. But so, your Big Mike, Big maybe Mike tastes, tastes a bit like more like it. Banana lollies. <laughs> um, but uh, so these these artificial flavors are usually quite simple um, organic chemicals where where they've identified sort of a strong flavor, isolated a particular chemical from the fruit or whatever it is that they're that they're imitating. And they've gone, okay, it's it's a lot like that. That is that gives you the 
you know, the, the reminder of the flavor. It's meant to remind you of a particular flavor, and it's not really an attempt to exactly mimic the genuine article because yeah. there's a lot more complexity. And as I said, it was it, it's partly about reducing the cost and making mm. things simpler. So mm-hmm. grabbing, you know, the strongest scent out of a particular flavor, whack that into your into your lollies and, and away you go, basically. Um, and most fruit contains dozens or hundreds of aromatic chemicals that give them a particular smell and a particular taste. And the artificial version is to kind of push us in the general direction and remind us of the flavors that, that they're imitating. One thing that's uh, distinctly different is vanillin, which is the chemical that gives vanilla its distinct flavor. Uh-huh. There's, there's basically no difference between artificial vanilla and the naturally derived vanilla flavoring. So it's one of the, one of the few flavors where the imitation vanilla is almost indistinguishable from the original flavor that they've tried to rep- replicate. And is that vanilla essence? Well, vanilla, vanilla essence is one version of it. So right. you can, but you can get vanilla essence, which is made from actual vanilla beans, or you can get oh, imitation right. vanilla, vanilla essence, essence which right. is made from other things. But it tastes almost exactly the same. You right. have to be a very, you'd have to be a super taster to get the uh, <laughs> to pick up the difference. I think. And most of the reasons economic, it's cheaper to buy a bottle of flavoring than boil down kilograms of a fruit to get a particular. Ca- particular flavor or particular taste out of it and the processing reasons are as much of a pressure as the labor and in in you know this this applies across uh, across the board in in food manufacturing so marshmallows for example originally made from the roots of a plant which is a kind of mallow which is the malvasi family it's in the mallow family that grew in marshes oh. marsh mallow not just a clever name it's actually a description of the plant it came from. So the roots of the marshmallow are vaguely sweet and they pre- produce this kind of mucilaginous texture when you <laughs> boil them down. I'm going to make sure I say that in a sentence sometime in the next day. Mucilaginous, uh, did you say? Absolutely, yeah. Like, like mucus? Yeah, mucilage. Mucilaginous, um, great word. Makes makes the marshmallows, the sweets, soft and squishy. But I mean, yeah, that, that's how you want your marshmallows. That's what you want from a marshmallow. Um, but as taste changed, lolly makers ditch the plant roots and mix, basically mix up gelatin and sugar. And oh. you get a squishy, puffy marshmallow, which is what we all buy today, which has nothing to do with the plant. You know, scrubbing all those marshmallow roots to get the, the mud from the marsh off them is, you know, it's a lot of work and you've got to pay someone to do that. So they, they ditched it. They just didn't bother anymore. Another example is licorice. Mm-hmm. So licorice has moved far away from its original source. Um, the original plant that licorice came from is called glycorrhiza glabra. Glycorrhiza means sugar. Glyke, Riza is root, sugar root. <laughs> sugar root. But the name Glycorrhiza is where we get the word licorice. What? It's just a corruption of that plant name. Um, plant has very sweet roots and a distinct aniseed flavour. But again, lolly makers ditched the plant roots for simpler methods of making black lollies and flavoured them with anise oil. Right, okay. So there's so, no more licorice root. Well, 
mostly. So mostly, okay. Krish, is flavoured with anise oil. It's cheaper. It's easier to uh-huh. reproduce. Um, you know, you can you can mix it in after you've added all sorts of other ingredients. But they basically mostly don't make licorice with the licorice root anymore. But there is also possibly a safety reason for doing so. Because uh, a man in Massachusetts died recently after eating too much old-fashioned licorice made with licorice root, according to an article in the New England Journal of Medicine. So licorice roots contain a substance called glycorrhizin, which comes from the name of the plant. It was isolated, which in high doses causes high blood pressure and heart fibrillations. Oh, goodness. And his favourite food was bags of this natural licorice root licorice, which was sold as lollies. Um, So doctors have warned people that as little as 50 grams a day of this natural flavoured licorice can produce heart symptoms in people over 40. So it's definitely a case here where the artificially flavoured version is better for your health than the natural flavoured alternative. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. So, for those of us uh, with not a lot to keep us entertained right now, you might be in lockdown and you might be streaming a lot of TV. Or you might not be in lockdown and you're streaming a lot of TV anyway. Um, But one documentary has caught the attention of people in Australia. Um, It's caught my attention. An unusual friendship between a South African diver and the star of the show, an octopus. It's called My Octopus Teacher. Stu, have you seen it? I've I've seen ads for it. I haven't actually watched the show yet. Yeah, I mean it's it, it's a fairly um, ridiculous name for a documentary. It's like mm. what an octopus teacher. This sounds a bit naff or something. But um, the sounds documentary like a Saturday sounds like a Saturday morning cartoon. <laughs> it does. It does. Um, and kids would be really disappointed, I think, if they if we expected a Saturday morning cartoon because it's certainly <laughs> not that. <laughs> so it's set. Um, it's set. It's a doco, so it's, you know, true, true to life, set in a kelp forest off the Western Cape of South Africa. And we follow this sort of this wildlife photographer who's burnt out from his job, um, but he's also a diver and he reconnects with the ocean uh, and encounters a very, you know, initially very cagey, very standoffish, but soon uh, very friendly and incredibly charming and likable octopus. And he goes back and visits this octopus every day, pretty much, for its entire life and films the whole thing and tells the story of his sort of uh, octopus teacher slash friend. Um, The movie, oh, it's, you know, Claire's film reviews right here. It is touching. (laughs) It's sincere. It's surprising. It's funny. It's beautiful. Honestly, by the end of it, it will leave you feeling a sense of wonder and awe as it reveals octopus intelligence and resilience. It's just quite incredible but I thought you know 
never to miss an opportunity about uh, talking up an animal. I thought it'd be a nice time considering everyone's talking about octo octopi, octivities. <laughs> a lot of people uh, use a certain word to describe um, octopuses or octopi and that word um, is alien. I don't know whether, I don't know about you Stu, maybe you've heard people talk about oh, yeah i mean so I've, even, I've even i've even read you know people saying oh they must be from they must be from another planet they're so unlike anything else on earth that yeah they've got yeah. to be from somewhere else there's there's something um conspiracy theory about it like oh this is literally an alien that's come down to earth um but you know first of all let me just say there's no truth to that they may feel alien to us um, but I think once you sort of like understand their, um, you know, our, our ancestry and, and how we've sort of evolved separately, um, it becomes a little bit clearer. So even though they may feel alien to us, it, our, our most recent common ancestor, um, between us and, and an octopus is, is very, very distant. So, um, in fact, it's, it's more than twice as ancient as the first dinosaurs. So we've been on very different uh, evolutionary paths from the octopus and the whole sort of like cephalopod family for a really long time. So what's, what is the nearest living thing to them that like, you know, how, what, what's their closest relatives outside the octopus looking squid looking things around? Yeah. So octopuses, squids and cuttlefish um, they're all cephalopods, um, so head, foot, cephalopod, head, foot, um, nice. and they're, they're part of the mollusk phylum. Um, so this is the same group that includes things like snails and oysters and mussels and scallops. Now, they don't look, they do not look a lot like <laughs> a, a, uh, an oyster to no, me. No, no, they don't, and... I think that's sort of where, you know, our human minds, you know, we see intelligence and that's where we sort of get, get caught up. Um, because when it comes to intelligence, octopuses are the real outlier in yeah. this group of animals. Um, and I reckon that's probably why we think of them as so alien because, you know, there's nothing else in that group that's just, that's quite as smart. Um, you know, so I, I guess they, probably could be the closest thing to to alien intelligence that we may ever meet without it actually, you know, being alien intelligence. Still yeah, just I mean, special. I mean, everything else that we consider intelligent is more or less related to us. Yeah, you know, exactly. Be, you know, you think of dogs and pigs and yeah, other chimpanzees, animals. Chimpanzees, you know. Chimpanzees, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're seeing a kinship. We're seeing ourselves sort of and our own intelligence reflected in that. But... Um, cephalopod and octopus intelligence it's something completely different um, and I think it's really interesting to think about uh, about octopuses in the context of mollusks because all of the animals I mentioned you know your oysters, your mussels, your snails they all have shells um, but obviously somewhere along the evolutionary path the octopus lost its shell and when you have no shell it becomes a lot easier for animals to eat you. Um, so you need to develop a way to avoid being eaten. 
So one theory is that um, you you know that octopus and uh, squids and cuttlefish have developed this incredible intelligence as a way of protecting themselves. And that makes sense, yeah, because they've got no they've got no other defense except yeah. to avoid danger, I guess. That's right. So, yeah, so in the documentary you witness the octopus outwitting a very hungry predator, um, and it innovates during the chase sequence. It changes colors, it hides in different locations. Um, and then in this sort of like extremely um, self-aware moment it uses you know shells and rocks and the things around it and it picks them up with its tentacles and it sort of um, camouflages itself to avoid detection and blending in so not only using sort of like the incredible color changing cells on its body but by sort of like blending in by picking up things and using them as as tools pretty much um, it's it's very clever and really shows us how vulnerable octopuses are um and yeah just once again i guess suggesting that link between intelligence evolving alongside this i guess lost shell now the other exceptionally clever thing that i did not know about uh the octopus until i saw this doco was that they can regrow their arms really do it on a regular basis did you know wow i didn't know that yeah, so if a predator ends up, you know, tearing off one or two arms, um, they they start regrowing within days, and wow. so that's why you um, you you it is very rare that you'll see an octopus with less than than eight arms. Um, they they come out as a little sort of like small arm, but then they grow pretty much to regular size. And they have regular functionality as well, which is which is pretty amazing. They have pretty much the same functionality that that an arm um, that that one of the other original arms would have. Um, so, from a human point of view, I think this is really fascinating uh, that this type of regeneration it's 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 so much more effective than other animals in the animal kingdom can regenerate their limbs. So think about like skink tails. I don't know if you've ever seen a regrown skink tail. It always looks a little bit different, it's a little bit smaller. Octopus arms look exactly like and 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 have the same functionality as the original arms, which is very cool. I guess I guess the lack of um, the lack of bony, you know, true center and that you know no no cartilage in there or anything like that to be regrown. It's a, quite a yeah, different process. It is. It is, but something that they do have they have thousands and thousands of nerves in every single one of their arms and um and the nerve bundling you know their their nervous system is quite decentralized they it, it exists within their arms so b- being able to regenerate that amount of nerves is something that humans really want to investigate well because we're not very good at regenerating nerves so researchers at the moment are using octopus um, using octopuses to teach us a lot about regeneration of cells and what type of biochemistry is involved, what sorts of biochemistry they use. Uh, so potentially we can take these learnings and this, um, you know, and apply them to our cells, maybe not necessarily to grow back our own arms or legs, um, I should say, but, but 
potentially in how we can regenerate nerves or, you know, extra organ segments and that sort of thing. So I think there's a lot of lot for us to learn um, on, the, on the research front uh, from our octopus teachers in that regard as well. So certainly next time you see our octopus friends in the water, hopefully you'll see the commonality between us, the potential, rather than the alien. That's all we've got time for for this week and we are rapidly running out of time. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook. We are broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. And if you would like to tune in next week, Chris, Stu and Claire will get locked in science. listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.